0: American stories, and our crew is always looking for, well, different kinds of stories that interest us and make us laugh, and hopefully will make you laugh or think or even cry. And this one stumbled on our desk, and it's called Anger Rooms A Smashing New Way to Relieve Stress. This was in the New York Times, and we love getting our stories from small papers in the middle of the country and some of our great papers in some of our biggest cities. And Donna Alexander. Well, she knows a lot about Anger Rooms, and she joins us right now. Donna, thanks for coming on. Hi,
1: thank you so much for having me.
0: Look, before we get into this new way to relieve stress, and I can't wait to hear it because I think we've all got it, and I think we've all got what we think are solutions to this. Let's talk about you first. Uh, Talk a little bit about, we love talking to people about their parents, their family, where they were born, and how that shaped them. So share with us a little bit about those things.
1: Okay, um well, I was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh but I was raised in Chicago, Illinois, and I come from a military background. So, um both my mother and my father uh, were army uh they're army veterans, and I spent all of my summers in uh New York, um in the Bronx. So, um I kind of got a <laughs> Uh, a taste of a lot of different cities and things, especially coming from a military uh, family. And um, when I attended school, I actually majored in commercial and residential architecture um, and graphic design and multimedia. And then later on in life, I had two kids. So I'm a mom of a daughter and a son uh, that are 10 and 12 years old.
0: That's fantastic. And tell me about the You know, we love talking to folks who had military experience or families uh, who had a lot of military experience. I'm a a son of an Air Force uh, officer, and I was conceived in Lackland Air Force Base and was born in Samson Air Force Base. I mean, I figured out the chronology and I bounced around and and it sounds like you bounced around. What how did that help shape and form your character? I I love asking this question to people who bounced around a lot uh, under the military umbrella.
1: I know that it, it gave me a lot of experience and just the different um, cultures and backgrounds of, of different people. Cause you know, from bouncing from one area to another, that means I'm going to different schools all the time. So I'm meeting people from all different walks of life. So, I mean, I think it just built my character and just being more understanding to people who are uh, different and have uh, different backgrounds and, and uh lifestyle so i think it helped in that fact and then it also gave me a a sneak peek at um at traveling um it let me it let me know that i like traveling <laughs> so um it it actually i guess played a a nice little part in in my life
0: well and you grew up you you spent a lot of time you said in the summers in the bronx and uh, as a kid from northern new jersey one of the great pleasures of my life a dear friend of mine said let's go take a bike ride across the George Washington Bridge and let's go to this place called Orchard Beach. And there was a guy named Tito Puente playing at the beach on a Sunday night. And I went there and I was shocked to find like 100,000 people that went to this beach, Orchard Beach, every Sunday to catch some of the great Latin artists of the world play there for free. Uh, wow. did, you, did you ever have the opportunity to go to Orchard Beach?
1: No, I haven't. I actually haven't been able to go there um... Usually when I got to New York and I played, I stayed right in the Bronx and then went to, you know, I just went to Manhattan, the different boroughs, and then my grandmother uh, would take me traveling with her. So then I would go to Philadelphia and, you know, South and North Carolina and things like that. So um, I didn't get to enjoy, like, too much outside of uh, Manhattan, Queens, and uh, and Brooklyn uh, when I was in New York. Well,
0: if you ever get a chance, it still happens, and it's uh, mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican families, second, third, fourth generation, who just okay. won't move. And I think part of the reason they won't move are Sundays at Orchard Beach, and it's a delight. Everybody grills, cooks out, and everybody dances. Everybody, it's required. <laughs> And it's a, it's just a beautiful thing. Let's talk a little bit about this this enterprise. Um, you know, I, I read this piece in the New York Times. How did how did it come to you that there needed to be such a thing as an anger
1: room? Um, when I was sixteen and at home in Chicago, um, at the time I want to say that was around ninety eight, and we had a real bad problem with uh, overpopulation of our jail system, and I just figured that. I could help out in some way. And I think part of that is because I had a lot of people who I knew, friends and family members uh that went to jail for like punching holes in walls or damaging other people's property. And I was like, well, what if they had a place where people can do that and not get in trouble for it and not go to jail for it? So um, that's kind of where the idea sparked. And then I thought that it was so good that someone else would come out with it. So I kind of left it alone for a few years and finished school. And I had moved to Dallas in 2002. And when I moved there, the idea resurfaced again. So I did some searching and no one had came out with it. So I still left it alone. (laughs) And then in 2008, that was like the last time this idea just kept popping up. And I was like, okay, I just need to go ahead and do it. So I started it out of the garage of my home in 2008. And I would invite my friends and coworkers to come break stuff in my garage for five bucks. And they started telling other people. And I started getting strangers at my house asking if that was the place to break stuff. So uh, when that happened, I knew that I had something. And that's basically how The Anger Room was born.
0: Well, I love it. And when we come back, we're going to dig into the Stuff People Break, how you built this business. And where it is now, it sounds like you're spreading out. Las Vegas and Los Angeles are on the horizon and we're talking to donna alexander and her story from the new york times anger rooms a smashing new way to relieve stress where people pay donna a few bucks and they just whack and destroy stuff this is lee habib this is our american stories you can go to our american network to catch all that we do more with donna alexander after these messages Yeah. stories and we continue our conversation with Donna Alexander and an article in the New York Times recently, Anger Rooms A Smashing New Way to Relieve Stress was the headline, and my goodness you've got to pick that up and read it and we just started laughing but there was something deep that was being captured here so Donna, you, you have your garage and people are coming in and what are they busting up in that garage? Um,
1: they were breaking things like TV, and computers um Laptops, a lot of electronics and uh, like stuff, animals and things like that, whatever I can find um, around my neighborhood that we ha- would have out for our bulk trash pickup days.
0: And, and so this continues to happen, and you're thinking, I have a business idea here. What volume of business triggered you to think, I need to get a separate location away from my garage? I think I've got the demand. I think I got myself a business.
1: Um, I want to say is that I know is the day that the stranger came to my door and asked, was this the place to break stuff? Um, Because before then, I didn't have a problem when it was just like a lot of my friends and coworkers and they would come all the time. So it kind of turned into like almost a traditional thing at my home. But when the strangers started popping up, I'm like, "Okay, you guys are telling other people, but other people are interested. So um, that's kind of when I knew that hey, I may have something here just because I have strangers coming up, and I, it turned out that I did. So.
0: And do people bring their own stuff to break, Donna? For the most part.
1: Um, sometimes they do. We don't require it because we always have stuff in stock, but they're more than welcome to bring their own stuff whenever they want to.
0: <laughs> and so mm-hmm. how do, how do we how do we get from the garage to the business? I mean, what was your business plan? Did you go to a bank to get the money? What was your first location? Talk about this first actual real toe into the real world of business, taking it away from a home business and actually taking that risk, Donna, with your time and your capital.
1: Yeah. um, Going from a garage to my first location, um, I kind of just like jumped in there and went for it. So I didn't have any uh, traditional Uh, bank financing or anything like that what I did is I started uh, from the background work so I wanted to start on trademarks and patents and intellectual property and then I worked on my business plan and came up with my own pricing because I wanted something that was reasonable and affordable for everybody in every income level so um, it I wanted just to make it fair and then once I incorporated all of that into my business plan, I started to look for uh, potential locations. And I already had an idea of where I wanted to be at, so I started there. And it turned out that it was, like, too expensive at the time. So I would just search around to find somebody to tell me yes because I got a 1,000-plus no's and la- doors closed and people laughing and thought that it was for crazy people. So um, I finally got a guy three years later. Um, that was willing to sub-lease to me. So my first space was a little bit over um, 780 square feet. And he just let us go go for it. And when we did, uh, before I even opened the doors, I had accumulated a waiting list. So I had a four-month-long waiting list. That's Uh, fantastic. Yeah.
0: (laughs) By the way, I'm a landlord. I own some commercial property. And for anybody who's a landlord out there, you're always thinking, hmm, who do I want in my space? And Mm -hmm. I I guess you had to be thinking, or at least the people who you were talking to had to be thinking, she breaks stuff Um, next. I mean, you know, (laughs) what if a brick goes through like the. Exactly. Exactly. So finally, you get a landlord to believe in you. You've got a waiting list. What about insurance? What are, are you able to insure this business?
1: Oh, yes, yeah. That was the very next thing that um that came up, and it was funny because I thought i got I had covered every aspect of my business, but I didn't think about the insurance until I got my first landlord, and he was like, "Hey, you think you're gonna need some insurance?" and I was like, "You know what yes, I do so I, I searched and uh, it only took me a few months to obtain insurance but um i was able to get us insured fully insured and even the insurance company uh when i had to explain to them what we do and how we do it um they were they were really skeptical about it because it was something new and not, uh, something they never insured before so um it just took a little bit of convincing and explaining to them how we run the business and then they were able to uh cover us
0: So, yeah, we definitely had. So, your sales skills, Donna, went beyond selling to customers. I mean, this is, by the way, what we learn over and over again when people start businesses. The sale never stops, the selling never stops. You had to convince an insurance company to cover you. And, by the way, it turns out, Donna, we learned there had never been a category for your business before. And as you know, insurance companies have to predict models of risk based on. Well, what's happened in that industry before? You are actually a pioneer here, Donna. You are the first the first good for you yeah. so now let's Thank talk you. about your expansion plans you 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 succeed in this first location, and where is the actual location of that first store
1: um it's in uh it's called Richardson, Texas. It's still in Dallas, but I guess it's considered um a suburb of Dallas yep. So uh, the very first location is in Richardson, Texas, uh, directly across the street from Texas Instruments. This is one of our biggest um, companies that we have here in Dallas. So we were right across the street from them.
0: And who are your your clients? Talk about who are the folks who come in? More men than women? Old? Young? Corporate? uh, Hipsters? Uh, Do hipsters (laughs) have
1: anger issues? Well, you know what? We get people from all walks of life. It is so... I think because everybody can relate to it, we it's hard for us to target down a specific demographic because we get all ages that come in, all professions, incomes, and things like that. Um, but I do see the majority of our customers that do come all deal with the same issues, which is um, uh, family issues and work-related issues and relationship issues. Those are like the top three And we can get people as young as 13 coming in with their parents. And we've had people as old as 75, uh, come in and break stuff. So, um, we just, we just attract a lot of different people.
0: And do you see actual therapeutic outcomes from this Donna? I mean, do do people come in more stressed and leave happier?
1: Yes. Um, it's been eight years now, I believe. So, um, from all of that uh, experience and watching people come in, come out, things like that, uh, it does show uh, a lot of therapeutic value. And I get people all the time uh, that participate, and they'll send me an email or give me a call and let me know how it affected their lives. It it even helps out health wise because we've had people that participated and lost tremendous amounts of tremendous amount of weight. Uh, just for participating in the anger room. So I think it has a lot of uh, different uh, beneficial potential there.
0: Well, Donna, tell us one of your favorite stories, if you can, from uh, your time <laughs> uh, running in the anger room.
1: Um, I would have to say uh, one of my favorite uh, sessions was we had a guy that asked for an office space, and we thought it was going to be just a typical person coming in to break stuff. Well, when he came in, he actually acted out a scene, and I'm guessing that it was probably from his workplace. And he sat down and he picked up the telephone and he pretended like he was talking to somebody and he got mad because um the person didn't sell enough shares or something like that. And then as soon as he finished acting out the scene, he like totally destroyed the room like to bits and pieces it was awful. Awesome. <laughs> that's my
0: most memorable one <laughs> that's great and tell me what your plans are donna you're you're heading off to two new cities and i assume you have to figure out which cities have a, a, an index of anger i'm thinking that you know some parts of america might not have as much anger as others but what's your goal what what in your dream in your in your vision in your blueprint for success what does that look like donna
1: Um, My goal, I would love for the anger room just to be a household name. Um, I would like to see one in every country and every state because I believe everyone needs an outlet. Um, And sometimes uh, we need a physical outlet, something that is normally frowned upon in public, but you can actually go somewhere and do it and not worry about getting judged or Uh, getting in trouble for it. So I would love to see it um, all over the place and be able to help as many people as I can as they deal with uh, stressful times and, you know, things that make people angry, uh, angry all the time. They just need a place to to let their hair down, and that's what I want.
0: Well, when I'm in Dallas, Donna, I'm going to come to Richardson, and I want to bust some stuff, and I want to film it. AngerRoom.com. AngerRoom.com is where you can go to learn more and We want to talk to you more, Donna, and follow this dream of yours. So let's catch up in about six months, see how many more stories we've got. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We've been speaking with Donna Alexander. The article of the New York Times, Anger Room is a Smashing New Way to Relieve Stress. This is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything in life. And where we love to bring you stories from medical professionals who are on the front lines of keeping us all healthy and who are with us in what are often the most trying moments of our lives. And today we bring you just such a story that we found on the terrific website, LifeZet.com. I happen to write for them too. It was written by a critical care physician named Jeremy Topin, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Jeremy's story.
2: The patient in front of me is trying to die. Elderly and frail, he's lying in the bed. His ribs outlined under skin that should be smooth. His temples are concave where they should be flat both an outward display of internal damage from his lung cancer. More striking than his cachexia are the strained muscles in his neck and his pursed lip breathing. He is working hard for each breath drowning in the air around him, from his cancer or pneumonia, or more likely both. It's my first night on call as a senior resident in the ICU. It is early in my second year of residency at the University of Chicago, where I'm splitting my time between internal medicine and pediatrics. The intensive care unit is outside my comfort zone, with its rapid pace and large volume of data to process, and the complexities of multiple failing organ systems to manage. I'm both intimidated and inspired by those who seem to recognize patterns, synthesize information, and anticipate problems with ease. I want to be like them. I want to face my fears head-on. I've chosen to be here to prove to myself that I can do this, that I'm capable of caring for the sickest of the sick. And now, in the middle of the night, without a supporting daytime cast of residents and attendings, I'm anxious for my first test, and it happens to be the man in front of me, struggling to breathe. I want to be here. I want to be a critical care physician. I know what to do. A, B, C, airway, breathing, circulation. He has A in airway. He needs B help with his breathing. His C circulation is fine, and his blood pressure for the moment is good. The team, two interns and me, prepare to intubate, placing a tube into his lungs to help him breathe. I've been reading for months about managing patients on a ventilator, the perils, the pitfalls. I review chapters and books written by my attendings who I will report to in the morning. I'm ready. Anesthesia comes and places the tube. I run fluids to prevent low blood pressure. I start medicine to sedate and calm my patient. I call out ventilator settings to help breathe for and give oxygen to my patient. It all goes wrong. His blood pressure drops dangerously low. He's thrashing around in the bed, working even harder than before. Alarms on the ventilator are beeping. His oxygen levels are now critically low. He needs more sedation to calm him, but that will make his already low blood pressure worse. He needs medicine to help support his failing circulation, but it requires a special IV, a central line in his neck or groin. I have placed a few, but not in critical situations, much less in a patient thrashing about all over the bed I try different settings on the ventilator settings for pneumonia with high oxygen and more pressure settings for COPD with quicker but smaller breaths all to no avail he is not following the books I have read nor any pattern I recognize he's gone from bad to worse and now is close to death I breathe but all eyes are on me the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the interns, are all looking to me, the senior resident, to take charge and help this patient. But the puzzle of my patient's physiology is beyond my recognition. I don't want to be here. I don't know what to do. I'm failing. But more importantly, my patient is dying. call a code, I say. The nurses look puzzled, but he's not coding. His heart hasn't stopped. He's about to. Call it. I need more help. I need more people here. Dr. Cart, ICU. Dr. Cart, ICU echoes overhead, alerting all those on call scattered throughout the hospital that there isn't a code or an arrest. They're to stop what they're doing to come to assist when that hospital-wide alarm is sent out. But when they enter the ICU, breathless from their sprint, they do not find a patient without a pulse, but instead a senior resident who is failing in his responsibility to help his patient. I feel shame, inadequate, an imposter. Worst of all, I'm a danger to my patient. There's now a larger group of residents, some more senior, others the same level of training as me. I quickly explain the situation, and after a few questions, two of them look at each other with recognition of the pattern that has eluded me. Acute right heart failure prompted by positive pressure from the ventilator. The right ventricle is struggling to pump blood to the lungs. Usually our focus is on the left ventricle pumping blood to the body. Difficult to treat when recognized, impossible if not appreciated. One resident deftly places that IV in his neck. The other goes to work on the ventilator modifying the settings and 30 minutes later my patient is stable at least for the next few hours through no help of my own. The three of us debrief a bit and talk about a game plan moving forward before I call and update the attending at home. They go back to their patients leaving me alone with my team and my thoughts. The patients in the ICU make it through the rest of the night unscathed, unlike my psyche. I am humbled by what I need to learn and shaken by how my deficiencies almost led to a death. My patient's life now on a more stable course, I find my own career path in jeopardy. with a bit more time separating me from the event I start to process the evening. My colleagues who came to my rescue did not judge me. They came to help a co-resident and patient in need. The shame or judgment I felt was my own and my own to bear. Today, I appreciate even more the culture and learning environment at the University of Chicago, where cooperation trumps ego and pride in an environment that encourages resident autonomy. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. What could have led to an abandonment of a life goal instead became a building block for future learning. It has been 17 years since my first night as a senior resident in the ICU. 12 of those have been as an adult pulmonary and critical care doctor. Working with a group of physicians, that practice with the same philosophy. That recognizing one's limits is an important part of being a doctor. There is no sin in having deficits, but there is in failing to acknowledge and learn from them. I learned more that night than the pattern of acute right heart failure. I took a big step to being a lifelong learner.
0: And what a great piece! And thank you, Dr. Topin. And my goodness, he was—he was recalling that incident as if it happened yesterday. And it's something we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form. It's how we learn, folks. And asking for help is not a weakness. Dr. Jeremy Topin's story here on our American Stories.
3: Storm into this house we're born into this world we're thrown like a dog without a bone
0: and actor out alone riders on the storm. This is our American stories, and we There's often bring you the, the story of a song. We've covered dozens of them. On this show, and you can hear them all at ouramericannetwork.org. Another brick in the wall. There goes my life. Jesus, take the wheel. Georgia on my mind. And light my fire by the Doors. And now we bring you another Doors song story, and it's told by Ray Manzarek, best known as the keyboardist and founding member of the Doors, with Jim Morrison, sitting at his Rhodes keyboard, Manzarek demonstrates here the creation of riders on the storm like the masterful musician that he was.
4: So one day we're jamming in the studio, I mean in our rehearsal studio, in the Doors workshop before uh, we got, uh, before we started recording. And uh, for some reason or another, Robbie was playing his twang guitar. And we were doing uh, Old Cowpoke went riding out on dark and windy day, and the uh, Jim said, "I got lyrics for that. I got lyrics for that." And he had uh, Riders on the Storm, Riders on the Storm. And I said, wait, "Wait, okay, that's great, man. Riders on the Storm. We can't, but we can't do to, we can't do Vaughn Monroe or the Old Cowpoke went riding out One dark and windy day." So I said, let me see what I can do with this. And here's what I came up with. We got to put some jazz to it, make it dark. And sure enough, this is what happened. But before we get to that, Oh, 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 Jerry Chef's there. when he when he comes in, we've got the whole thing together, and Jerry, Chef says, what's the bass line? I said, like, simple. E minor, A major. He said, oh, man, that's impossible. I said, what, for you? That's not impossible. Let's, look at this. It's like nothing to it. And he said, uh-uh that's that's on the piano right that's on the keyboard sure that works great on the keyboard there's nothing to it watch this on the bass guitar and I don't know what the hell he did he had to go through machinations like turning his wrist up virtually upside down inside out trying to play it and I said oh I'm sorry man but it sounds so good and it's so easy on the keyboard that you got to play this and he went okay okay I'll play it And here's the rain part. Thunder. After we finished the song, he said, Oh, man, I've got super rain and thunder. It's riders on the storm it's raining on the desert right yeah exactly bruce raining on the desert he said we got to put in some uh, uh some rain and thunder so sure enough i mean the whole thing starts with and then that baseline Another one. Ender Morrison. Riders on the stone. Riders on the stone. Into this house were born. Into this world were're thrown. Like a dog without a bone. Out on loan Riders on the storm So it's basically a blues song It's a one, four, five Except we change the five And this insane part that Morrison sings There's a killer on the road Brain is squirming like a toad a long holiday. Let your children play. If you give this man a ride, sweet family will die. Killer on the road. Yeah, Robbie.
0: And we're listening to the one, the only Ray Manzarek, founding member of The Doors, as he walks us through the creation of this masterpiece. Riders on the Storm, which was released in June of 1971, Ray goes on to give some vivid insights to the haunting lyrics crafted by Morrison. And again, this is why we love telling these stories. You're hearing it from Manzarek himself taking us into the song, taking us into the DNA, into the coding of this song. And by the way, you don't hear music like this in a mixture of jazz and blues and country-western. And it all mashed together in this creative and almost brilliant way. And what a story Morrison's telling. He's really putting you in a place. And so let's continue with Ray Manzarek. And then Jim sings,
4: Girl, you've got to love your man. Girl, you've got to love your man. His world on you depends. Our life will never end. Gotta love you, man. He had the idea to make a movie about a hitchhiking killer, and that's if you give this man a ride, sweet family will die. Killer on the road. But he couldn't. He couldn't leave it at that. He couldn't. The song was just too haunted and too beautiful. And almost almost as if he had a premonition. And certainly, he knew he, at this point, singing this vocal, he knew that he was going to Paris. You know, he knew he was going to Paris. He hadn't told anybody before we did this vocal. But he knew he was going to Paris. And he was singing his love to Pam and trying to wipe out in his mind and on the planet, that killer on the road. So he says, girl, you got to love your man. Girl, you got to love your man. Take him by the hand, make him understand. His world on you depends, our life will never end. What a great line that is. I mean, isn't that the ultimate love? His world on you depends, our life will never end gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Keyboard solo. Thunder, bring in the thunder. Then Densmore kicks it in again.
3: And
4: we're back on the highway. Riders on the stone. Jim's back in. Riders on the stone into this house were born into this world were thrown like a dog without a bone an actor out on loan riders on the stone robbie plays some great guitar Haunted voice. Riders on the Stone, Riders on the
0: Stone, Riders on the Stone. And what a performance. You just want it to not stop, actually. And that's what we do here in our American Stories the story of a song. That's Ray Manzarek, Riders on the Storm. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do, and particularly our stories of a song. It's one of our favorite regular, fe- regular features. Another brick in the wall, there goes my life, George on my mind, light my fire, and many, many others. And again, thanks to Ray Manzarek for that instruction. It's like, it's like going to school, but the kind of school you wish you'd had in your life, but never did. And so we leave where we started. This is Our American Stories.
5: Excellence must be pursued, it must be wooed with all of one's might and every bit of effort that we have. And each day there's a new encounter, each week is a new challenge, and all of the display and all of the noise and all of the glamour and all of the color and
0: all of the excitement and all of the rings and all of the money, these are the things that really linger only in the memory. But the spirit,
5: the will to excel, the will to win, these are the things that endure.
0: And you're listening to the late Vince Lombardi, when we celebrate great American iconic figures, and there was no bigger one in the mid to late 20th century than Vince Lombardi. He affected everything. And we love talking to great writers. And we're going to talk right now with David Moranis, who wrote the book on Vince Lombardi, When Pride Still Mattered. Go to Amazon, pick it up. You will not put it down. It tells the story not just about a man, but a place and a time. David's the associate editor of the Washington Post. His latest book is Once in a Great City, a Detroit story about 1963, a time and a place and a great American city. And David, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Let's start in the beginning. Vince Lombardi's dad. What did he? <laughs> what did he do for a living? And describe the world.
6: Oh man, that young Vince, Vince grew Lombardi's up in. Lombardi's father, Harry, was a butcher. The family lived uh, in Sheepshead Bay uh, in Brooklyn. Harry would commute over to the lower west side of Manhattan where he had a butcher shop. One of his nicknames was Old Five by Five, which described about how he looked. He was short and squat and very strong and sort of uh, inculcated into his sons that there was no such thing as pain. Uh, He was tattooed. Uh, You know, before his time, I guess, you know, he'd fit in with a modern-day athlete in that sense. Uh, But my favorite tattoos were on his knuckles. On one uh, hand, his knuckles spelled W-O-R-K, work. And on the other hand, the knuckles spelled play, P-L-A-Y. And that, too, sort of reflected some part of his son's mythology.
0: Indeed. And, and, and here's a quote from you. The trinity of Vince Lombardi's early life was religion, family, and sports. It would be true for his entire life, wouldn't it be, David?
6: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, in various orders, but he was, he was a very religious man, Catholic family, Italian Catholics. At one point, Vince himself thought he was going to be a priest, and he always sort of carried that inside him for the rest of his life, and he was trained at, at Fordham by the Jesuits and the Jesuit philosophy was a very important part of his coaching philosophy. Um but family was, was really everything. His mother's family were the Izzos and she was one of thirteen Izo kids. And that was you know all kinds of uh cousins and uncles and aunts and and that family really is the environment that Vince Lombardi grew up in something that he never was able to recreate with his own nuclear family, as we'll talk about, but but was able to recreate with his team, the Green Bay Packers.
0: And by the way, 13 kids, people are listening like shocked, right, David? But Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic, yeah. and just lots of families, 8, 10, 12, was, well, it was pretty normal, wasn't it? Yeah,
6: no, it was not out of the ordinary for an Irish Catholic or, or Italian Catholic family of that era. Uh, the Izzos were pretty well renowned in Sheepshead Bay because there were, there were so many of them, and they, they had uh, various uh, professions um, in that place. But no, it was, not, it was not shocking that there would be 13 of them.
0: Now you wrote, quote, The church was not some distant institution to be visited once a week, but part of the rhythm of daily life. Talk about that.
6: Vince Lombardi, as an adult, went to Mass every morning. When he lived uh you know wherever he lived at at Fordham as a student uh he was trained by the jesuits um then he was a, a teacher and coach at Saint Cecilia High School in new jersey um where he, his best friends were the were the fathers there and the nuns um when he was at Green Bay uh he went to mass every morning at Saint Willibrod's in Green Bay, which was a pretty heavily Catholic. Place and and finally uh, I love this story. Late, you know, late, his last move in his career was to Washington D.C. He of course wanted to go to mass every morning, but the mass that he wanted to attend was held at something like nine nine thirty or ten, and he wanted to get to work before then. So he literally knocked on the door of the priest and told him to move his mass up so that the could get to work. (laughs) That one didn't work. Uh, He couldn't tell God what to do, but he could tell everybody else.
0: That's right. In the end, there was a part of me that, as I read your book, he he almost wanted to submit to something higher than him.
6: That was about the only place in his life where that was true, yes. But I I think that uh, people have various levels of commitment to faith and religion, and I think with Vince Lombardi, it was authentic and deep, and he did need that. Uh, he also, it should be said that he went to Mass every day because he knew he was a flawed human being, yep. and he knew that he sometimes had anger management problems, um, not that he was violent, but just that he, he accepted, you know, with his words, um, and he wanted to try to control that, and he regretted it, and that was one of the reasons he, he went to Mass to sort of for penance in that
0: sense. Now, well, let me hit you with another quote, and uh, this is a Lombardi quote in your book. From the first contact on football fascinated me. Contact, controlled violence, a game where the mission was to hit someone harder, punish him, knees up, elbows out, challenge your body, mind and spirit, exhaust yourself and seek redemption through fatigue. Such were the rewards an altar boy found. In his favorite game, David suffering, pain, redemption. It sounds like football and religion had intertwined.
6: Yeah, they certainly were with Vince Lombardi. Uh, There's one great uh, irony or paradox to that, which is that Lombardi was kind of a wimp. (laughs) He had a very low pain threshold himself. He had a much higher pay threshold for other people. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, um, you know, even the trainers would talk about how Lombardi would get sidelined with a hangnail. And at Fordham, he was often disabled with one injury or another. I mean, he was a tough human being. He had a strong spirit. But as I write, and I believe this is true with many coaches and politicians and leaders in general, they see their own weaknesses and understand them and try to eliminate them in others, which they can't eliminate in themselves. So the whole notion of fatigue, though, and giving your hardest and leaving it all on the field, is something that Lombardi did personally and that he truly believed in, the reward of that hard work, which is part of the Jesuit philosophy.
0: And when we come back, more about the impact of that Jesuit philosophy on the life of Vince Lombardi. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with David Moranis, author of When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. And we love to do deep dives on great books of the last 25 years. This is one of the best and about one of the great subjects. And David, people would never believe it. But once upon a time, New York City was a real college football power. We had Columbia and NYU. And then there was Fordham where young Vince decided to go play football. Talk about the role of those Fordham Jesuits in the formation of Vince's character and life.
6: Well, I think that you can trace everything about Lombardi's coaching philosophy back to the Jesuits. The key one in my mind is the notion of freedom through discipline, which I think explains Lombardi better than anything else and is a Jesuit notion, which is that only through the hard work and repetition and commitment that comprises discipline can you eventually develop the freedom Um, In your life, Um, you know, for the Jesuits, it was free will for Lombardi. um, If you transferred it to his football teams, it was that once they learned, they disciplined themselves through that hard work to understand what they were doing, it slowed the game down for them and made them um, have a leg up on all of their opponents. And that was the freedom that his hard work gave to his players.
0: It's so true. I'm going to read again from the book. All the detailed preparations resulted not in a mass of confusing statistics and plans, but in the opposite, paring away the extraneous, reducing and refining it until all that was left was what was needed for that game against the team. Exactly your point there, David.
6: Yeah, and I think that um, along with the Jesuits, the other uh, major philosophy that affected Lombardi was from West Point, where he was an assistant coach under the great coach Red Blake. Who really had that same philosophy of making things simple by being a good teacher? It doesn't mean that that things are are dumbed down for for uh the players, but just that there's so much extraneous stuff that teachers put into something, and their the ability to to make it understandable to every player um, and to simplify something until it has a more powerful effect is something he also learned from Red Blake.
0: Indeed. In fact, you wrote, quote, In many ways, the philosophy at West Point was similar to the way of life that Lombardi had learned earlier at Fordham under the Jesuits.
6: Absolutely. I, you know, it was a perfect uh, storm. You know, our, our leaders born or made, um, I think there's a combination of the two. But I think that, that the making of Vince Lombardi with the ingredients he already had uh, came from the Jesuits and and West Point in a way that, that made him unique.
0: Now, his first job out of Fordham, his first coaching job, was on a little hamlet in northern New Jersey called Englewood. I grew up not far from there. Uh-huh. And St. Cecilia's High School, I'm going to quote again from the book, when he took the job at Saints, Lombardi said later, his frame of mind was that he wanted to be a teacher more than a coach. And for some people who really knew him, and you did as you studied him, that was true all the way through, wasn't it?
6: Oh, totally. Yes, he was, he was a teacher coach. Everything that helped him with the Green Bay Packers was refined first at Little St. Cecilia. He, he taught a lot of different classes, including chemistry. And again, he, he what he tried to do was make it, he wouldn't go on in the coursework until every kid in the class understood it. Um, and he had a, that ability to make complicated things seem understandable, comprehensible. So that, you know, later when he first got to the Green Bay Packers, I, Bart Starr, the quarterback, spent one hour with Vince Lombardi and rushed to a telephone to call his wife to say that he'd never experienced anything like this and they were going to start winning because of the way that Lombardi who was a lineman, by the way, could explain what it was like to be a quarterback.
0: You know, this is extraordinary. We're going to play the clip from Bart Starr in one second. But what's interesting, in Lomb- when Lombardi, and we're just jumping ahead of the story, we'll return back to St. Cecilia's. Sure. When, when Lombardi gets to, to Green Bay, the team had been 1-10 in 10 the year before. 1-10. <laughs> in 10. So he's now meeting the players. He gives this pep talk. And within an hour, as you said, here's Bart Starr talking about that. As I'll always remember our first meeting with him. It was dynamite. And uh, I called my wife, Cherry, and I said, honey, we're going to begin to win. That's all <laughs> I said to her. Honey, we're going to begin to win. In his very first meeting, you could
6: see how well prepared he was. And then how he approached what he was teaching at that session that day. Uh, you, could, you could sense an outstanding
0: teacher and uh, builder that he was. And that's exactly what we were. He just brought us right up quickly. It's extraordinary. Eight years he spent at St. Cecilia yes. doing just that. Eight years, David. That really mattered, didn't it?
6: In a couple of ways. One is the the uh that he was ready when he finally got his chance. He you know, he'd already developed the skills that, that were needed for, for when he when he finally got his break. Secondly, in another way, all of that time, eight years at Saint Cecilia's and then and then several other assistant coaching jobs. You know, 20 years basically in the the wilderness before he got his break all made it so that he had this enormous overriding will to succeed when he finally did get his chance.
0: West Point is the next gig. Talk about this man, Red Blake, because we all need mentors in life, and sometimes we're just lucky enough to stumble on one.
6: Well, Blake was a superior football coach. He had great organizational skills. He also was a terrific teacher, and his motto was, you have to pay the price, which was sort of a a continuation of the Jesuit motto of freedom through discipline and the notion that you get out of life what you put into it. And it was part of the learning tree for, for Vince Lombardi.
0: And and what's interesting is this is back when West Point, and this is again hard to believe, was a national powerhouse in football, oh, championship teams.
6: So. Yeah, they when when Lombardi got there, they'd come through a couple of amazing seasons where they were the number one team in the country. One of the other threads of my book, however, is the fallacy of the innocent past. Where you know, we're always longing for something golden in the past and and tend to romanticize it for that reason, there are many valid reasons to do that, but you can't look look at it through rose colored glasses so you know during Lombardi's time at West Point, there was a cheating scandal among among the uh football players. you know human nature doesn't really change the the culture around it does but but the temptations of life are are there you know in every generation, and yep. so at West Point, it was, you know, a cheating scandal that almost brought Red Blake to his knees. They had an amazing recovery, but it was a very difficult couple of years.
0: And there's an honor code there, so in a place yes. like West Point, it's even just, it's worse than Big State University, a cheating scandal.
6: Um, right. I mean, it, yes, it's it's sort of more uh, discombobulating that, that those young men would, would be involved in that. It wasn't the first time, and it wasn't the last time, though, that one of the... Academies had a scandal like that, and partly because of the pressures of the honor
0: codes. You bet, and that they're young men in a very tough circumstance and that nothing changes there. One scene in the book really stood out for me, David. It was of Lombardi taking game film from the West Point game (laughs) and bringing it to New York City for an important graduate who lived in the Waldorf Astoria. Who was that graduate? That
6: was uh, General Douglas MacArthur, who by that time was back from his controversial... uh, period as a as a gen army general, but still revered West Point. He'd once been the superintendent at West Point. He and Red Blake were very close. And so one of of Assistant Coach Lombardi's assignments was to go down to um, New York and get the film developed and stop off at MacArthur's penthouse suite in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and show him the game films. Um, MacArthur was always following in great detail the starting lineups of the West Po of the Army football team, their schedule, um, their preseason drills. He wanted to know everything about every player on that team, and one of, so Lombardi got to spend time with him, uh, showing him game film uh, during the seasons.
0: That had to be a real learning uh, experience for him, at a minimum. Lombardi yeah. and MacArthur, by the way, both believed David in the value of competitive sports to shape and mold men's character. Talk about that.
6: Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, um MacArthur was very much into the notion that that you know, mind and body uh, went t- together and that sports were essential to to building character. Um, you know, that, that that's a debatable point. Um some people argue that sports don't make character but reveal it. And uh, you know, I think it's always an interesting uh way to look at it, but but for MacArthur, sports was was really a central part of, of what he saw as the mission of West Point.
0: And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Moranis, the book When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. And I just can't get out of my head what that must have been like for a young coach Lombardi, an assistant coach, to bring game film to General Douglas MacArthur. I would have wet myself. I would have peed in my pants. When we come back, more of the life story of Vince Lombardi with one of the best writers in this country author David Moranis This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. We're talking to David Moranis, author of When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. And Vince's next job, he was the assistant coach for Wellington Mara's New York Giants. He's in the big leagues now, David. He was the offensive coach and Tom Landry, who would go on to fame as a coach of the Dallas Cowboys. He was the assistant coach in charge of the defense. Talk about that.
6: You could say that that was the best combination of of uh, assistant coaches in NFL history, so much so that the head coach, Jim Lee Howell, they used to joke that his only main assignment was to make sure the footballs had enough air in them. <laughs> and then he turned everything over to uh, Landry and Lombardi, who were um, yin and yang, uh, just opposites of personality and coaching styles. Um, La- Landry was cool, methodical almost uh, almost an automaton in the way he wanted his players to to act and the way he coached, and Lombardi was um, much more emotional, uh much more uh uh you know high, high and low in terms of how he would deal with the players, uh just complete opposites.
0: Indeed. And by the way, he had to learn something new. He had to adapt Lombardi. These were grown men. Guys like Charlie Connolly yeah. had served in war. Talk about how Lombardi adapted from teaching young people to teaching grown men.
6: Well, you're right. Uh, you know, his first uh, training camp with the Giants, um, he, he did, the, the offensive players really didn't uh, take to him at first. Frank Gifford, uh, the great halfback, and Charlie Connolly, the old quarterback. They thought he was sort of amateurish and, you know, trying to sort of a rah-rah college guy. So it took him a while to adjust to the pro style. But that's a very important point about Lombardi, which many people don't quite understand. He has the reputation of sort of my way or the highway being inflexible. He wasn't like that at all, really. He was very disciplined and tough, but he was also a master psychologist who who would study his players and figure out how to get the best out of all of them and learn and change and adapt. And that's exactly what he started doing when he became an assistant coach at the Giants.
0: And all teachers in the end have to do that because culture changes, people yep. change, and you just can't te- te- you can't treat people as robots. They're people.
6: That's exactly right. And that's why when people ask me whether Lombardi could succeed today, I say yes. Um, he he would He would learn how to get the best out of players today, just as he did in his era, and he would adapt to that without changing his fundamental philosophy and The players would adapt to him because they realized that he had their interests at heart and that he would help them win
0: indeed let 's talk about the professional football experience then because it 's not today baseball boxing, even horse racing got more coverage in newspapers pay was poor. In your yep. book, you talk about how players barely got paid for preseason games, and many teams had no compensation plans for injured players. But Lombardi was lucky to come into the league, just as all of that was beginning to change, David. And it didn't hurt that he was in a big media market like New York.
6: No, it didn't. And it didn't hurt that um, that the game had him as well. And It sort of was a nice uh, synergy between the rise of professional football and the rise of Vince Lombardi. So everything that he learned in New York by the time he got to Green Bay football, the NFL was finally coming out from being a second-class sport to being the dominant sport that it would later become. And and the sport used Lombardi, and Lombardi used him in that rise.
0: Indeed, and so he ends up in a little hamlet in the Midwest called Green Bay, <laughs> and his poor wife. I mean, New York City, and Ala- it might as well have been Alaska that he was going to as far as his wife and family were concerned. We haven't talked much about this thing called the marriage. Yeah. And the wife had drinking problems. Uh, Vince wasn't exactly a model husband in terms of how he talked to his wife, treated his wife, and he was never there. Talk about that relationship and what the wife did, because she really tried to keep Vince in New York.
6: Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a difficult it's a love story, but a very difficult and human and problematic one. Marie was from New Jersey. She loved the East Coast. She liked uh, the clothing stores in in Manhattan and just the whole lifestyle there. And and for her to go to to Little Green Bay was just a utter culture shock. There was a Broadway play that was made out of my book and. The character that steals the show in the play is Marie Lombardi, played by the great actress Judith Light. The scene of them driving west for the first time and rounding Chicago, and then running into a snowstorm. It was amazing to see Judith Light portray Marie in that scene, where she sees nothing but white ahead of her, and what that sort of represented to her. Vince Lombardi was much better at creating a sense of family out of his football team than he was out of his nuclear family. His wife had um, a paradoxical situation where she loved being Vince Lombardi's wife, and she grew to love football and and really understood him and the game, but in the end, quite well. And yet it was a very lonely experience because he, in a sense, was married to football as much as or more than her and she did have a drinking problem and um there were several moments in their lives in green bay where things got pretty dicey she was in the hospital once for for an overdose of uh, of drugs you know um of pills i'm sorry not drugs and uh, of course the relationship with vince junior was equally difficult imagine being carrying that name and that bird. There's a book in that,
0: David, The Sons of Great Men, maybe. maybe you. No, uh, yeah,
6: I know, there really is.
0: Yep. There's a great scene in your book where Lombardi, the new coach, gives his first impassioned speech to the Green Bay <laughs> team that had just lost 10 of 11 games. He told them they were going to be the New York Yankees of football. He told them that he would relentlessly pursue victory, and anyone who didn't like it was free to leave after the speech and i'm quoting from your book there was silence the room empties lombardi approaches veteran max mcgee what did you think lombardi asked well i'll tell you you got their attention coach mcgee replied you know i wasn't sure lombardi confided everybody could have just gotten up and walked out for all i knew it showed a tremendous vulnerability in lombardi and an honesty and i think that is what really came out of this book for me what a human being he was
6: oh absolutely you know you can try to create uh, a mythological creature as a saint, um, but it's the, it's the frailty and humanity of someone who then goes on, despite all of that, to achieve uh, success that makes Lombardi the more interesting uh, character. And he did have those vulnerabilities and those uncertainties. And they drove him as much as, as his confidence that he was going to win.
0: Indeed and well, I love there's a video I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's Lombardi on a on a in front of a chalkboard and he's outlining the sweep.
6: Oh yes, that's that's uh iconic.
0: Yeah. It's like a physics class. It's so intricate and yet he mastered his team mastered this play and it became well it became the iconic play of the great American football team known as the Green Bay Packers. I
6: love the the story of the sweep as much as anything to describe Vince Lombardi because on superficially um, it seems simplistic. You know, the other teams would have all of these fancy plays, and 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 the Packers had the power sweep, the Green Bay sweep, and other teams knew it was coming. So why did it succeed? It's because Lombardi taught it so well and so thoroughly, and allowed freedom in the discipline of that sweep, so that every player involved in that sweep, whether they were a blocker or the runner, knew about 10 or 20 variables that they could use on the sweep, depending on how the defense was reacting. And they understood it so well that they were one step ahead of the defense on that play. And that was the freedom through discipline of of Lombardi's philosophy, exemplified by one play that seemed simple, but actually was rendered simple in its complexity.
0: And when we come back, more with David Moranis, his terrific book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. This is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email address, and we will get you our five best stories each week in audio form and in text. You can read it, you can listen to it. That's ouramericannetwork.org. More after these messages with David Moranis and the life of of Vince Lombardi. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with author David Moranis and his book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, and we love to cover these stories. This book was written almost two decades ago, but we cover the great iconic stories in this country and the writers who wrote the books, and for those who hadn't read this book, well, go to Amazon.com. It's still out there, folks, and you won't put it down if you read it, and David Lombardi had no room in the locker room for racism or in the city of Green Bay. Does that have anything to do with how he was treated as an Italian? He'd been called WAP, Guinea, Dago, and so many other bad names. He knew the sting of racism and racial prejudice.
6: You know, it did certainly affect Lombardi. That—that that, That's not to say that that was the only factor, because I think there are other Italians who were discriminated against or anybody, you can react one of two ways. You can then find somebody else to discriminate against True. yourself. Yep. Or you can take it as a learning lesson about you know that we're all uh, in the same boat. Lombardi took it that way, um, in the best possible way. When he got to Green Bay, you know I think there were three blacks in the whole town, and one was the shoe shine man at the Northland Hotel, and the other two were Packers. Uh, he brought the first wave of of great black athletes to Green Bay and one of the first things he did was go to all the taverns in Green Bay, or most of them, because there's so many, uh overwhelming there's a tavern on every block. Right. But he said, if I hear that you're discriminating against any of my players, you're off limits for all of them and that had a pretty profound effect. And that was the sort of thing he did throughout his career. When they had preseason games in the South, uh, the first instance they were in New Orleans and the black players had this sleep somewhere else. He said, we'll never allow this again. And he would put the whole team up together at a army base instead of having to deal with this with the Jim Crow South. Um, he was very strong on race, and all of his black players from the day they first met him to the day he died uh, revered him for that.
0: Yeah, and the military, we all know this about the military. Long before there was integration talk, the first real cultural institution in America that brought the races together was the military, David?
6: Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it too late. It happened after World War II, basically. But, but the military and sports, more than any other parts of American life, have become true meritocracies, at least on the playing field, or on the the field of battle. They did a lot, both of those institutions, to to break the racial barriers of this country.
0: Let's talk about prayer. Hugh said it was, quote, the essence of Lombardi's religious practice and the constant of his daily routine. Quote, his daily prayers were an effort to balance the tension between his will to succeed and his desire to be good.
6: You know, it's quite something that he saw that in himself. He might have the appearance of not being the most self-reflective human being. So obsessed did he seem with, with prevailing. But in fact, he did have that self-awareness, and it was the central part of his uh, faith, of his life of prayer, was to try to find the right balance. Even if he couldn't do it outside of the, the uh, church, he understood the problem that he was dealing with and his own frailty on that. And that was, that was what he spent a lot of... You know, he didn't pray to win. He prayed to be a better person.
0: And in your chapter, Trinity... His son talked about his dad, and I'm going to quote from the son. Life was a struggle for my dad. He knew he wasn't perfect. He had a lot of habits that were far from perfect. His strengths were his weaknesses and vice versa. He fought it by taking that paradox to church. It went back to the Jesuits always and the struggle between the shadow self and the real self, your humanity and your divinity. He saw that struggle clear, my dad, in concrete terms. Wow, what a wise son, David.
6: Isn't that something? I know. I felt blessed when I started this biography that Vince Lombardi's son was not perpetuating a mythological sainted creature as a father, but had a clear-eyed vision of him, and it wasn't, he didn't hate his father, he loved his father, but he knew his father's flaws. And he had suffered because of that himself and spent a lot of time thinking about it, So that by the time I approached this book, Vince Jr. was very open to letting an author sort of see the reality and the complexity and the paradox of of his old man.
0: And what father and son doesn't have this complicated relationship? And the honesty of this, the brutal honesty of it, was absolutely beautiful.
6: Oh, I agree. I mean, every every father-son, mother-daughter relationship has some complexity to it of one degree or another. This one was a little more complex because of the father's fame and his obsession and the son's inability to break through until, until, you know, it's almost too late. But that level of comprehension of, of Vince Jr., of what his father was dealing with, is quite extraordinary.
0: Lombardi would go on to win a world championship by beating his old team, the New York Giants. And he didn't just beat the Giants, David. He destroyed them. When the score was thirty-seven to nothing, he finally started playing his subs. And Lombardi called that title game the biggest thrill of his life.
6: Well, you know, he probably thought that he was going to be the coach of the New York Giants. That was, you know, he was a New York kid. That was. He liked. Uh, he and Wellington Mara both went to Fordham in the same era. There are a lot of connections there. He, he, he didn't get the job, and then by the time he was might have gotten it he didn't want to leave again. So beating the beating the New York Giants. I would say that first 37 to nothing game was probably the the most important of his career along with the last along with the ice bowl at the end.
0: Yep. There was this great celebration at the Elks club in town <laughs> and everyone was there after this victory. Players too. You wrote this about Lombardi and the men he coached, quote, as despotic and unfeeling as he could sometimes seem on the practice field. The coach had taught them how to win. He lifted their self image. He challenged them to accomplish things that they had thought were beyond their reach. I want to play you a clip. It's of Jerry Kramer talking about coach. Oh, great. And and, and this is a guy talking, possibly, David, 20 to 30 years after this incident. Let's take a listen to Jerry Kramer.
5: I jumped off sides one time in a scrimmage and he got in my face and he said, Mr. The concentration period of a college student is five minutes, high school is three minutes, kindergarten is thirty seconds. You don't even have that. So where's that put you? Put me checking my shoe shine. I go up in the locker room, sitting there, chin in my hand, elbow me, looking at the floor, thinking, I'm never gonna play for this guy. He came in the door, came across the room, slapped me on the back of the neck, and messed up my hair. He said, Son, one of these days you're gonna be the best guard in football. He turned around and walked away. And that started my motor. With that comment, he allowed me to think about being a great football player. And from that point on, I worked my tail off. I gave him everything I had. It made a profound impact on my life.
0: And just listen to the emotion in that. That started my motor. It yeah. had a profound impact on my life. Don't we all wish we had somebody in our life like a Coach Lombardi who would push us beyond what we thought we could do?
6: <laughs> that That uh, is incredibly uh, emotional for me because my father did the same thing to me at one point where I had no clue what I was doing in my life. I was 15 years old, and he introduced me to someone and said, this is my younger son, Dave. He's going to be the best writer of all of us. Um, you know, and so I know that what that, what it means to have that motor turned on like that. And the key to Lombardi, which many coaches who think they're mini Lombardis don't understand is that you have to have that balance. Yes, you can be tough, but you have to have the ability to know when to, when to show the love to your, to your players and that you really, you know, it's, it's about them. Um, and their ability to work together. Um, and Lombardi had that. There's some Lombardi wannabes who just see the tough part of it and don't see the love part
0: of it. Yeah, they don't see the softness either or the vulnerability, and that's right. that's a considerable uh, loss for them. Final parting thoughts here. Once that Giants game wins, in my mind, the Super Bowls were afterthoughts. They were going to happen. He had achieved all he'd achieved. What, if it, was there something after it was all done that you you thought, I should have put that in the book? I missed it.
6: Boy, that's a great question. I missed a couple of stories that I wished I'd gotten. One was about Lionel Aldridge, um, the defensive end, an African-American who was in love with and married a white woman, and there was a lot of pressure um, to prevent that from happening, Uh, believe it or not, in that era. uh, You know, we still had that level of of racial bias, and Lombardi stood up for Aldridge and said, you know, we're human beings first, and don't feel any pressure from me about that. Seems obvious now, but I wish I'd had that story in my book, because it was one more level of Lombardi. I do have in the book the fact that um, his brother Harold was gay, and Lombardi was terrific on on that issue, which still is not something that professional athletes can deal with in a particularly healthy way even today, but... Lombardi made it clear on all of his teams that if he found anybody discriminating against someone because of their sexual orientation, they were off the team.
0: And as a Catholic, that had to be something. I mean, he was yep. actually practicing perfect Catholicism. He was loving on the gay player.
6: Yeah, uh, <laughs> he was practicing. You're, I, I love the way you put that, um, because there's so many different ways that people distort uh, uh, religion and, and Catholicism and and. And he was uh, applying the, 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 the fundamental love of, of, of what faith should be.
0: And David, you did such a good job weaving in the Catholic nature of Vince Lombardi and the Catholicism that informed his entire life. And we've been talking to David Moranis, the book When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. Go to Amazon.com and order it. It was written 20 years ago, but it's still one heck of a read. Vince Lombardi's story here